You are listening to PLV Radio Network. Join us in celebrating all of life's possibilities with inspirational, illuminating and insightful talk shows. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everybody. Welcome back to another edition of Positive Living Vibrations with me, your host, Sarah Troy, and my guest today, Carrie Stewart-Parks. Now, this lady's dangerous, very, very dangerous. She has pencil, and she's not afraid to use it. Ah, why does she have a pencil, and how does she use it? This we're going to find out today. Carrie is a forensic artist. Now, I've always wondered how fascinating that would be to draw the bodies of a gruesome scene. Yes, I know I'm being very gruesome here. And kind of capture that moment there. And you would think today that everything is based on photographs, but not so. They still use a forensic artist in the work today. And she has done a lot of things. And this led a book, a book that we're going to be sharing today called The Cry from the Dust. Um, This is going to be very interesting, folks, so, you know, not for the squeamish, um, and we're going to have a lot of fun with it, so if you're allergic to laughter, change stations, and we're going to find out a bit more about Kerry and how this all came about. Why forensic artist? You really have to have a tough gut for it, and she's... uh, Goes works with the FBI. She's a trained FBI forensic artist. She goes around the country, you know, teaching this. And really, it's uh, quite interesting. So let's just get it nitty-gritty. Why forensic artists? Why the book? Why do we still use forensic art today when we have the photography? And what got it, her into it in the first place? Welcome to the show, Carrie. I am so excited to be here, Sarah. Thank you. So you're a very dangerous lady for the FBI, carrying your pencil around? Oh, yes. <laughs> I, I, my, my motto is I've got a pencil and I'm not afraid to use it. <laughs> or sometimes I say, don't make me have to do you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're FBI after all, right? You've got to have a weapon well, of choice. <laughs> I work with the FBI. My, actually, my husband worked for the FBI as an artist um, at the headquarters in Washington. Washington, D.C. So they do employ full-time artists, uh, but for outside work, uh, regional work, they often employ the local artists that they have trained. Mm. So what training would it be different as a forensic artist as opposed to just a regular artist? Well, actually, most of the training now comes through short courses, which is what my husband and I now teach, usually a 40-hour course, and it would be not just learning how to draw, you should learn how to draw, and you have to draw faces, and some artists can draw anything, but you draw faces, but you're not drawing what you think, you're not drawing your opinion, Mm. you're not putting your artistic tweak into it, you're drawing the memory of a victim or witness from a crime, so you have to be able to interview, which is different for artists, Mm. you have to be able to interview what's called a cognitive interview, with a victim or witness of a crime that you cannot contaminate with your own thoughts or your own poorly worded questions. And your victims and witnesses come from all sorts of lives and backgrounds, and you have to be able to interact with them, get them to trust you, get them to share their, oftentimes, their most horrible 
time of their life with you and put their drawing down on a piece of paper, their, their memory down on a piece of paper. So you're interactive camera in a sense, aren't you? You know, the camera captures the picture, but if you're having to actually interview, you know, I would imagine there's a lot more depth that comes out in a drawing from the actual interview as opposed to just the camera lens. Absolutely. And also, many detectives and law enforcement professionals will sit in on our interviews just because the questioning that we give and the direction we go opens doors that were not open before, and they get insights that they didn't have before, because we're talking about what they visually saw, and otherwise detectives are dealing with what they say happened, not what they saw, and your strongest form of memory is what you see, not what you remember, not what you can articulate to a Mm. law enforcement officer. Yes, so it's, it's going through that entire album in somebody's traumatic head and trying to bring out a memory that isn't contaminated. Yeah. So if you've yeah. got somebody saying, well, did he have a short nose or a big nose? Suddenly they're confused. You know, it's kind of rather, <laughs> what kind of nose do you think they had? And, um, and, and the words they use are their own words. We don't know what they mean by short nose or big nose or funny looking or I had one description where they said his cheeks were <laughs> <laughs> I can't even spell that let alone think of what on earth are they doing well that would give me an image that there were very wobbly cheeks <laughs> you know if they're shaking it from you know like a you know one of those big huge sloppy dogs <laughs> well that would be one way but actually what they meant was you know when you see a baby with big you know yeah. puffy cheeks and you go you know and, and jiggle the cheeks that's how they met, puffy cheeks. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but you see the difference there in the interpretation of yes. the words as opposed to what they really meant. Yeah. So uh, we have to learn how to go through the words and find out the actual picture and then put that down on paper. Now, today you see things on CSI and all of these things that, you know, they just sit with somebody who works on the computer. Um, you know the four heads. This, that, this, this, that, that, that. You know, is is this the same, but with the pencil? Um, you know, because not every station has this. You know, CSI up to date, fictitious. You know, um, machinery. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> is this more reliable? Um, well, the the computer is nothing more than a very expensive pencil. Yeah, And the problem with computers that everybody knows is, first of all, the learning curve of learning the program, which is quite steep. Uh, secondly, the computer programs go obsolete. I, I think, personally, that they're obsolete by the time you get them out of the box. Yes, but I agree. Yeah. <laughs> programs are constantly being replaced, and, and so therefore you're spending a lot of money for a very expensive pencil that's going to become obsolete. The underground, they're underground, the underlying knowledge base that a forensic artist has does not change. You have to know about faces and how the the face, the lighting conditions and so on affects the face. So that's the underlying knowledge base you have to have. And whether you use a computer or whether you use a pencil, the knowledge has to be there. Mm. And it's along the same lines as, well, you know, I'm a writer because I have spell check. Right, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Doesn't quite work that way. Right. Uh, There are a few programs that uh, that artists are starting to use, mostly using the tablet. Um, However, I find that it's, it's, again, it's just a glorified pencil. The programs 
that they show, you know, where they can, you know, automatically elongate a face or something like that, none of those are particularly useful. They're, um, they look really cool on TV. Yes. But they don't really work. Right. Yeah, and, you know, I just really couldn't even imagine, like, every station having one anyway, you know, because I would imagine the cost would be quite a, a lot to have somebody skilled like that everywhere. Um, you know, do you have to actually know you, um, uh, the the bone structure, obviously, but the ethnicity um, of a bone structure, you know, because yeah, there are certain, you know, ethnic people, like high cheekbones or, you know, wider this or you know do you have to know any of that in your background as an artist for a forensic artist you should have some knowledge of that but basically when we sit down with someone we have them select images out of catalogs and the image itself gives us the detail the information that we need so most people are not going to say well he was argentinian or (laughs) he was (laughs) they're going to say well he kind of looked like that guy right there and so we draw what they're pointing at. And they'll say, well, he looked like that guy, but his, his eyes were more wide open. Okay, well, all the information I need is right there in the photograph. So all I do is make the eyes larger or the nose longer or wider or whatever they say for me to do. Um, so we, we have to have the knowledge base, but we don't usually necessarily apply it except as probabilities. Uh, for example, the probability of a certain look to a particular group of people might be there but that's about as much that's about as much as we do mm-hmm. so you, you know really you're a translator yes in, in a sense yes so um you know back in the day of course the they used to you know draw bodies and things like this or, or they're in the court you know um when they wouldn't allow cameras in the court you would have the artists in the court you know, um, capturing everybody there. Um, you know, it's is that a dying art, or are we still seeing that? We're still seeing it somewhat. It is somewhat of a dying art uh, because we're allowing more and more cameras in. But I have, I've gone into the courtroom or gone into the um, initial interview type thing up until I think the last one I did was a year or so ago. So it's not completely gone. It's a specialized tool to be able to do the courtroom sketching. I have to say, of all the different types of art that I do, that's easily the hardest one because they won't hold still. (laughs) This traumatic point of their finger, and then they move. You want to run out there and say, no, no, hold that. I've almost got it. (laughs) So, So it's very difficult. Interestingly enough, most forensic artists that work in the field as composite artists and so on don't do the courtroom drawing just because of the difficulty and the training. Right. Most of the courtroom artists came out of the fashion field uh, because a lot of it is full body and it's gesture drawing. So um, some of the, the earliest and, and best known forensic artists that work in the courtroom were actually, their background was doing um, fashion modeling, fashion design, and drapery. Right, interesting. Well, that makes sense. Um, you know, and also you've got the, you know, the the artists that are, you know, kind of the cartoonists, you know, the people at the fairs mm-hmm. and things. And so they're used to drawing very, very quickly and, mm-hmm. you know, capturing an image very quickly. So it's like a snapshot in their head. If somebody moves, they've still got it. Um, so I'd imagine it would be a different type of art. So, I mean, 
did you, you know, I mean, obviously I can imagine, you know, when you're having to ask people things and they're having to relay back, you know, the, the horror of somebody that they've maybe witnessed doing a crime or doing a crime to them. And then, you know, probably less graphic, but more the emotional pain that you can witness through doing this? Yes, absolutely. What I do when I start the interview is I ask or I make a couple of comments that are very specific. The first thing I say is I need you to tell me what happened. I need you to start at the beginning and don't leave anything out, even if you think it's unimportant. But when it comes to the bad part, you don't have to tell me about it unless you want to. So what that does is several things. I say, I want you to tell me what happened, okay, so I get an idea. Number two, I want you to uh, don't leave anything out, even if you think it's unimportant, because of what's called memory linking. That is that maybe in the course of this crime, they saw a little dog, and the little dog was trotting across the parking lot, and, and they look at the dog and think, oh, wow, gee, I wonder if that dog has an owner, and so on. And they're watching the dog and thinking about the dog, and the dog walks past a license plate or a, a car or a person or something very important. Well, if they leave out the dog, they're not going to get to point B. Right. They're not going to mentally link it to the next object over. The third thing I see is I need you to start at the beginning. And what uh, we have found is that when people relay a story, if their story starts with a fight with their family or their boyfriend, oftentimes their story mm -hmm. has elements of deception in it because uh, the uh, fight is the reason why they ended up being where they were. Yeah. So if it starts with a fight, I'm always going to sit up and <laughs> take notice. And then I say, you don't have to tell me about the bad part unless you want to. And that gives them control of the situation. They don't have to tell me all the things that happened to them. Uh, and it's their choice. So now I'm giving them control over their circumstances, which is what they didn't have before. So those are the, that's the way I started on the open narration. This is what I need from you. And then I just sit there and listen and nod and make, as one of my students said, make nummy sounds. <laughs> and uh, let them know that I'm listening to them and nod and so on and jot down the pertinent points that I'm, I'm looking for. I mean, the thing is, for anybody who, you know, ends up in front of you, they're, they're either the victim or the victorian, you know, the perpetrator. And whether they're the victim or not, very often just being, you know, in a police station, and when a crime is being committed to you, there's always that feeling of interrogation that no one's going to believe you. Um, and, you know, feeling that you're in the Inquisition. So, you know, for you to actually say, you know, tell me, tell me the story from the beginning, but you, you, don't, you, know, you don't have to go into the bad parts. You've just empowered them, you know, not to have to kind of rape and pillage themselves again by, right. you know, I want to know all the details and feeling, you know, that that horrific thing is having to be relived again. They most likely will speak to it, but it's on their terms rather than somebody else demanding those details and looking at them as if they're a liar or, you know, prove it or did you ask for it, you know, all that judgment that comes with it. That Why most people in many crimes never go to the police. Right, and, and that is so important. We're not the first line of people that they meet. Usually they're, they've had to go to the hospital, they've, they've talked to a detective, a patrol officer, and all of the other people have to know all of those details. I don't have to know that, so that makes a huge difference. 
The second thing is I'm not across the table from them. They're sitting next to me or in the corner of table. So they can see that we're both going in the same direction. We're not mm. opposing each other, facing each other. We're both going towards a common goal, and that common goal is to get the face of the person that they saw. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, when you're in a traumatic moment, you're going to remember that face very, very differently to sometimes the way it really is. Uh, just because your memory is, you know, um, seeing the devil in the person. And so it, certain images of that person will come out, you know, more profound than perhaps really what they are. Do you find that you kind of get an, an image of what they perceive as evil being done to them as opposed to where the way the person truly looks? Um, yes, you can get built into the drawing their emotional feeling about the person. Um, what I oftentimes will do is I'll say, um, I'll ask that the person maybe what their job would be. You know, so they've got, is he a bank president? Is he a student? Is he a street person? Is he a day laborer? So by moving it from that into giving them the ability to say, okay, well, he's kind of this look of a person. Which, um, secondly, I have <laughs> I had, for example, one lady who said he had a really, he had this really big mouth, real wide, big mouth. So I, oh my gosh, I drew just the biggest mouth you ever saw. <laughs> she said, no, smaller, 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 smaller. So we got it back to a normal sized mouth. And then she said, I said a big mouth, but really it was because he was screaming and cussing. Yes. So her feeling went into the drawing. And then when she saw it, she realized, okay, well, the mouth really wasn't big. I was just thinking, you know, that that was my emotional feeling. And then often I'll say, when you first saw this person, did they frighten you? Or or how did you feel about them? And um, if they say, no, actually, no, he looked pathetic, or he looked this way, that also can be built into the drawing, but it also has some step back and and their emotional feelings uh, in front of us, and we can look at those emotional feelings and understand what they were talking about. You know, I also imagine that, you know, when, when the picture is done and they actually are seeing that person, you know, sometimes, as they said, it, the, the mouth isn't as big, so they may be, you know, you've, you've diffused uh, the image mm-hmm. of them during that uh, whole trauma. Yes. Um, but at the same time, is it also sometimes then a total reality? Yes, that's the person who did it to me. You know, becomes a realization, uh, you know, a little traumatic realization all over again. Uh, it can be quite dramatic uh, to the extent of bursting into tears or or turning their head away as if they were slapped or pushing back away from the table or they can have a really deep emotional feeling toward the drawing. And so you, you actually even counter that by saying, okay, well, now we've put your memory down on a piece of paper. Maybe when you leave today, you can leave of that behind on this piece of paper. You've gotten it out of your head now. You can start to let some of it go because now I have possession. I wouldn't. Yeah. Yes, I mean, really a fascinating, uh, you know, um, career that you've chosen here. And I can imagine one that really can be quite gut wrenching. Um, yes. And, you know, I think you have to have your emotions in check with something like this. Uh, as you said, you can't bring. You have to bring a certain amount of empathy uh, to the person so that they can actually speak 
to the picture. But at the same time, you can't bring too much. Um, otherwise, you're going to get totally in, entwined in the emotion. And uh, so I suppose it's a very fine line. Not Whether you're a good artist or not, I wouldn't imagine everybody's cut out for this. No, uh, there, there are people that are not cut out to do this type of work. And in our training, we try to weed them out or at least suggest that they might want to look at a an angle away from this, uh, mm-hmm. maybe using some of the skills, but maybe not dealing with victims or witnesses. So, yes, it, and you also need a support group uh, in law enforcement. They can talk to each other, or you can ha- you need to have somebody in your life that you can sit down and say, oh, let me just tell you about this case. A lot of times they, they, my students will use me. I'll call up and say, oh, I just had this horrible case. Let me talk to you about it. And then they can you know, relive it and work their way through their own emotional feelings. So, uh, yeah, a support system is probably the biggest necessity for a forensic yeah. artist. And really understand whether you are, um, you know, have the makeup to be it. Um, you know, it's uh, you can understand why sometimes, you know, some cops go off the rails because, you know, they've had to suppress those emotions and they see things over and over again and at some point enough is enough. Um, and, you know, when it comes down to it, we are only human. And I think the the thing you learn here is, is how horrific humans can be to humans and uh, or to all life forms. And, you know, what is lacking in our human nature that makes us so violent towards one another? And, you know, I'm hoping today that we're seeing a difference now, um, you know, with the conscience raising, with people, you know, wanting to collaborate and cohesively work together um, instead of that, you know, competitive and combative and uh, the insecurity that has run man for so long. So I'm hoping that, you know, one day your job would be obsolete. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> just purely because crime has become something of the past but you know that probably is science fiction and uh, and uh, you know if it happens in this century fantastic um, but yes I think we have a ways to go on that but um, the more and more we look at ourselves the more and more we can start making those changes absolutely and yes it would be marvelous that I had no I no longer had a job that that uh, I'd become obsolete because we all got along and nobody was doing something horrible to somebody else um, and we can always hope for <laughs> yes sound like Miss Universe world peace <laughs> <laughs> if we don't put it out then we don't make it happen so it all starts with us right so you know Absolutely. I mean, you know, um, you see the the worst side, but you know, what do you do, you know, with your art, to kind of bring back the beauty to your art? Well, I, in addition to being a forensic artist, I'm also a fine artist, so I do have that other side that I can develop. And many of my forensic art law enforcement students also develop their fine art and go on to become fine artists. So. That's great. So you you may draw a rapist one day, but you can go home and paint puppies. You know. Yes. It it, it really helps. It balances the picture quite a bit more. Yes, and if you you know if you go to her site and you see her pictures, she's she's got her puppies here, beautiful <laughs> uh, white labs. Uh, but you know, I I just actually love that picture of that flower. It is just so soft and pure and calm and tranquil. That you know, it's from what you do to then doing such art like this with such purity and gentility um, it seems to be a complete opposite. 
Well, it is. It's the two sides to us. It's the the side that's the working side where I'm dealing with you know that particular thing, and the other side is the creative side where I'm painting you know not the ugliness that we can be to each other, but the beauty that is around us every day. And um, I like my. I love my doing watercolor. Yes. I can um, see that. Just, <laughs> it's beautiful. <laughs> that's that's what captures the purity and the and the romance and the you know the tranquility. You know the, those watercolors are so soft. Thank you. Beautiful. Thank I can you. understand. I can understand where you because if you do oil painting, it kind of there's a lot of sometimes layers or even aggression that can come out of that. And I just imagine, but just looking at your art, you can see, you know, this is where you go for your piece. Yes, um, and I, I do the, the uh, very transparent, I do loose, wet-on-wet uh, type of paintings and just let the paint and the paper, that was the way I was trained, but let the paint and the paper do the work for me and I just have to know when to stop. <laughs> yes, yeah, less is more, but that you can see that here in your art, so um, I'm glad that you do go and do that because it certainly is very beautiful and um uh, as I said, very, you know, the first thing when I first saw your art was the, was the tranquility and the peace. So you could see it is your haven. It is, you probably would not be able to do what you do in your life if you didn't, if you couldn't do your art in this way, because you wouldn't have your balance. Yes, that and being Christian and, and prayer and, and um, sort of thing, all of that contributes to balance my life out so that I can deal with the worst side of people and still be able to find the best side of life. So how did we lead to the book, A Cry from the Dust? You know, was this a kind of a composite of all the stories that you had heard along the way? Did the character get formed from doing the those drawings? Or, you know, where did this story come from? Well, my first thought was uh, that I, I couldn't actually write a novel. I had written... At the time I started that one, or at the time I was working on it, I'd written different how-to drawing and paint books. Because, I mean, how hard is it to write, you know, sharpen the pencil at one end? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it wasn't until I started writing a book, a nonfiction book about signs of deception, how you know when people are lying to you. And I thought, oh, I'll just use my cases as illustrations for these different points I want to make. But I had to fictionalize the cases so that people wouldn't recognize themselves. Yes. And in doing so, I thought, well, gosh, this isn't so hard. (laughs) I was so stupid. (laughs) Ten years later, (laughs) I had to learn how to write. But I decided I wanted to write about things that I knew. And what did I know? Well, I'll make my character a forensic artist because I know that very well. And I wanted to put her in a a country-type uh, setting rather than in the city, so I put her in Montana. I actually invented a town, but it's where I worked on a triple homicide, so um, it's kind of the fictional town of Hamilton, Montana, called it Copper Creek. And I surrounded her with characters that are kind of a conglomeration of different friends of mine, uh, kind of like take like the, the way this person looked and the way this person acted and created the, the ensemble around her. I gave her a daughter who was horrible, uh, which is based on me at that age. <laughs> <laughs> the truth I did all those out. Oh, she was horrible. She was horrible. I named her after my niece, who was absolutely perfect, and who gets such a kick out of the you know the evil side of herself. <laughs> uh, 
I gave her Great Pyrenees because I've had Great Pyrenees since I was eight years old. So, and I adore them. And uh, then I had my character have breast cancer and a breast cancer survivor. So she's at the story opens and she's about two months from her last chemo. So I know what that was like. I know what it was like to be bald. I know what it was like to have people stare and, and to go into early menopause because the drugs you take and all the things they do takes care of that and to have hot flashes all the time at a most inconvenient time. Yes. Uh, uh, then I gave her a horrible acting out husband, which is not my husband. He's a lovely man. Um, but I was divorced, so I thought, well, I know what that feels like. Um, so I started off with just a lot of things that I knew about intimately, things that I could really talk about from the heart. And then into that, I, uh, I had a whole bunch of things that had gone in the back of my head. And I thought, oh, okay, what if? What if this or that? And one of the things I got to thinking about was that in the Battle of the Little Bighorn, uh, one of my instructors, a forensic art instructor, had reconstructed the faces of some of the men who were killed in the Little Bighorn. And it's there at the interpretive center. I thought, well, what if we had an interpretive center at another real event, which was the Mountain Meadows Massacre, which occurred in 1857. And in the course of that massacre, 120 uh, unarmed men, women, and children were slaughtered by Mormon fanatics named Avenging Angels. And their bodies were strewn across the countryside. But they did bury three people. I thought, well, what if... They dug up these three people, just like they did at the Little Bighorn, and what if they brought in a forensic artist who is reconstructing the faces of these these settlers? And, oh, better yet, what if one of the faces resembles the death mask Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormon Church? And so that kind of launched the whole story. And I had to uh, do a huge amount of research into uh, early Mormon life um, and what happened to Joseph Smith when, at his death in 1844. And could this have happened? And, and what would happen if? And, and what would happen over here? And, and as I was doing it, there were so many cool things that I found out. For example, the final day of the Mountain Meadows Massacre, uh, it was a four-day standoff, was September 11th, which was uh, September 11th, 1857. It was the largest domestic terrorist attack on U.S. oil until the Oklahoma City of uh, 1996. So that was an incredible thing. Um, There were only 17 surviving children that were parceled out to Mormon families. But if you count the names of the recovered children, there are 18 names. I thought, wait a minute, you got 18 <laughs> names, but only 17 recovered children. So what if the 18th name was? And so <laughs> all these cool, cool things that I found that just played into the story. It was like a story waiting to happen. Yeah, exactly. Wait. <laughs> exactly. So, um, yes, yeah, so you became investigator as well. You know, Absolutely. and I suppose your investigative skills as a forensic artist probably, you know, came into really, you know, good play here. And, you know, allowing you to ask those right questions and know what to look for. You know, as you as you would in your drawings, you know, your artistic went into the, you know, the discovery of the story and painted a different picture. Absolutely. And one of the exciting things was that uh, 
the place where Joseph Smith was murdered uh, was a jail, and it, it's written extensively in their, their literature. But a couple of fellows who were not crime scene reconstructionists, but they did a crime scene reconstruction on the actual room. And that's one of the things that I used to do when I would prepare the trial charts, is I would reconstruct and illustrate for the prosecution or defense. And so I read through their material, and I thought, oh, wait, I've found holes I can do something with. <laughs> this is great. Uh-huh. They, there's a way a bullet do that. Oh, perfect. It works. And so I was able to take the parts that work for my story and utilize that. So it was, it was way fun. I, I have to tell you, I had so much fun writing this book. I know why it took 10 years, because you were having too much fun <laughs> investigating <laughs> it. <laughs> and it sounds like, I mean, it's, it's actually, I mean, my brother is a you know, and he's a very disciplined writer, and he, you know, he does the all handwritten notes first, and then goes in oh. and does his chapter by chapter, very disciplined. And, you know, it's, you know, to see somebody go on an adventure to discover what their story is going to be and how it unravels and how it unfolds and, you know, taking your own reality, um, you know, cancer survivor, you know, and the artist, everything, taking that and going into, you know, making it something that is really authentic and that people can relate to, you know, it makes it a story that really people feel will probably come out feeling that this was actual history. Yes, that's actually some of the feedback that I've been getting. I was also very blessed in that in the, when I first started doing my fictional writing, my mentor was named Frank Peretti, and Frank Peretti is called the Dean of Christian Fiction. He's uh, sold over 16 million books. His first book that really hit, hit the world was This Present Darkness, and uh, he mentored me for those 10 years on how to write a thriller, how to, to write tight prose. And, and um, so he was very, very good in, in teaching me all the things it would take to take this story and turn it into um, something that people would read and go, oh, gosh, you know what? I wonder if that really did happen. Yeah. It, it kind of sounds like it could have. <laughs> That's, that's that's the beauty of when you when you when you mix reality and your your own you know uh, fictional. Well, actually, basically, what you're doing is is you're sharing your thoughts and what could be, um, yes. and so you know mixed in with the reality. I know for myself, you know, in history in school, you know, next chapter boring, yawning, you know, just didn't capture me. But take historical events and put it into a storyline. I was you know, engrossed and wanted more. So, you know, I think we as human nature actually learn a great deal more from taking something that's got an historical truth to it and take that journey of um, where you can relate to the person, you know, who's taking the journey. I think it stays with people so much more. Absolutely. And uh, my publisher, which is HarperCollins Christian, um, Thomas Nelson, wanted, uh, they actually wanted ordered up three books. This is the first of a series of three at this point. And it really liked that element. It made it unique and different for this type of fiction. Um, on the second book, they were asking, okay, where is that same element? We want to we come out of this story knowing something about a group of people or a particular thought process. And so I was able in the second book, it's called The Bones Will Speak, uh, to bring in some of my past cases, which had to do with a group called the Phineas Priesthood. 
So it's been really interesting because as I'm going through this writing process, I'm able to explore and discover things about people that I probably wouldn't even know about or care about or read about, but to make it into an adventure story, a exciting um, possibility as a thriller, uh, that's that's been an absolute joy for me. And, and certainly the reviews coming back said that other people are enjoying it also, which is all I can ask for. Yes. Yes, and that's you know that's what you want. But it, you know, it's, I think this is where people go wrong when they write books on any historical event or even on something. Because you know, I get books all the time from people I interview, and you know, the book where I can truly see their journey in it, their discovery in it, their unraveling um, of you know of, of their wisdom and what they've learnt, always intrigues me more than either a linear book you know, chapter by chapter of what they did, or just a dry, factual book where really I just don't feel any of the heart and soul in it. You know, you've really poured your heart and your soul in there and you've made it something that, you know, people can totally relate to and at the same time ask more questions about, did this really happen? Maybe I'd like to investigate that a little further. Absolutely. And and my character in each of the books, in the first one, she explores the idea that everything happens for a reason. Everything in her life happens for a reason, even if she doesn't know what that reason is. And if she does that reason, in her lifetime, it's a blessing. All of the bad things that happen in her life and that are, you know, crashing down on her. And she has to say, well, what is the reason? Why are these things happening? And so that, that level of exploration of finding out, okay, why is this going on and, and what does this mean is another thread or layer to the storyline as well. Yeah, and sometimes the reason for redirections in life um, don't come to us in the form of an articulation. Right. You know, you know it, it just is we suddenly find we're taking a different path. Uh, we're living a different life, uh, one that we were meant to take. And whatever happened to us, we wouldn't have taken that path had it not happened. So sometimes it's not something that you can say, well, this happened, so therefore that was my catalyst to making that happen. Sometimes it's just a, a simple step to the right. And we find we're on a different journey. And it's only later we look back and we realize, oh, maybe that's the reason why that happened. Yes, exactly, precisely my thought on that was that we, we oftentimes have things happen and we, at, at the time it doesn't occur to us that this is going on for a reason or that this is going to change down the road because it's like a, a rock thrown into a, a pool of water and those ripple effects that go outward. But they make such huge changes down the road of the choice day and Sometimes when we look back and go, oh my gosh, there it is, I see it now. At the time, no, probably not. But to have that concept that you can look back and see these changes in your life and how they, how they played out. Well, you know, I often say to people, you know, there's some people that really get the gentle kiss on the cheek and they realize, ah, this is where I'm meant to go. And other people literally get the hatchet in the head. Um, you know, I pre-interviewed somebody yesterday who ended up with a brain tumor twice. And I said, that was a double hatchet. Did you change directions? He said, yes. <laughs> I finally <laughs> got it on the second hatchet. And, you know, and for some people it is that. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, hey, you know, the universe is tired of being subtle with you. Is this what it's 
it's going to take for you to stop and change direction. And uh, we don't know how it's going to come about. Uh, for you, no. it may have been your cancer, you know, mm-hmm. redirect you, um, change your perspective, change your journey, change, you know, the way you're going in life. Um, I've had quite a number of things myself. Um, I broke my ankle. I'm still trying to work out why, though. Maybe it was just to get me out of high heels. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm still waiting for an explanation on that one. <laughs> and sometimes the explanation does not Exactly, exactly. It's okay, tall enough I don't need the heels <laughs> and sometimes we won't and if we get caught up in but why you know we're going to we're going to miss uh the answer because we're too busy screaming the question sometimes you know um, yes. I'm um I was with a client the other day and he said I'm trying to put my plan together and I said that's the problem you're trying to put a plan together before walking your life participating in your life where the plan will then be formulated and it's sometimes we can't put a plan together because we don't know where we're going or what we're meant to be doing sometimes we've just got to do what instinctually feels right at the time and then we will actually discover it's formulated a plan that's very profound and i think that's very true that uh, you're you think you're in control of things and you try to form your life in a particular direction and when it doesn't go in that direction um, and I'll give you a really horrifying example um, I mentioned that I was married before and my husband my first husband had m- numerous affairs and finally just walked out said I don't want to be married anymore well my plan was I was going to grow old man I mean I was he was my life. He was my love, you know, the whole bit. And I was quite shattered. I mean, literally seven years of nightmares. Um, and I, I kept saying, why, why, why? Well, about two years ago, uh, he had remarried, uh, and he strangled his wife. Ah, uh, uh-huh. So, why, why, why? Yeah. <laughs> As I said, the explanation may come later. <laughs> Exactly. It's like, (laughs) thank God, you know, you wouldn't have left him because you loved him too much. Thank God he left you. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Otherwise, that so could have been you. And that's, yeah. So, what we think is the end of our world uh, was actually an end of a very bad chapter (laughs) that, had you continued with that book, would have been a totally (laughs) different ending. So, you know, those, and that's the, that's the thing in life is that stop worrying about, you know, the why things happened, um, but pay attention to what the message is. Mm-hmm. You're just not meant to be there. So, okay, where am I meant to be? Well, mm-hmm. take that leap of faith and walk forward. Walk forward in trust of your soul, your heart, your spirit, and let your mind know what it needs to know at the time it knows it. And just trust that information and it will lead you down the path that makes sense where you can then formulate a plan and you understand what your meaningful purpose is and you're living in your divine truth. But until we're willing to walk that journey, everybody wants to go, what's the next number I have to walk to? Just walk, just walk and it will all be revealed. But walk in that truth. 
trust it. Step out on faith. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Whatever your faith is, it has nothing to do with religion. It doesn't matter. It's whatever your faith is. It's okay. just having that leap of faith and listening to your gut, the divine knowledge, and just walking that path and it be revealed. You don't have to understand. Does this path lead to a highway? And where does that highway go to? And is there a city? And is this along the way? Forget about it. Just walk along the path. Everything you need to know will be along there. Absolutely. And had you not walked along that path, A, you may not be with us today, um, B, you probably wouldn't have written the book. And, uh, you know, and, and, and with this book, you've opened up a whole new world, not just for yourself where you're going to continue writing because clearly you've got the bug, but you've opened up a, a, a world of inquiry through other people who read the book. Yes, and I, I definitely would not have gone in this direction. I would have stayed in the, the world that I was in at the time. I would have made decisions based on that. Uh, with that push, and then there were several other nudges, cancer, of course, and so on and so on, all of those different effects in my life uh, caused me to make changes and adjust. When I was diagnosed with cancer, I had already agreed to give up all of my art shows for the year because I was going to concentrate on writing. And so I was able to still keep very busy and write all through while I was going through chemo and surgeries and so on. Now, I could not have done the art shows because those were physical activities yes. and all these other things. So each of the decisions that came along were decisions that were the correct one, though they may not have seemed so at the time. You were following a path? Absolutely. So that's the thing is even out of adversity comes something that is, you know, that is quite wondrous is that, you know, I've, I've again interviewed, you know, I interviewed somebody who it's, they wrote a book on a true life story of um, this guy's wife's uh, best friend being murdered by her husband who also murdered their son, then committed suicide. And it was the entire, you know, thing of, of that you know, what the effect it had on their family, how it shattered their family, and, you know, the forgiveness that was needed to be had for everyone to heal. And I know that for some people to, to write these type of things, they have to do it because part of the entire experience that they went through had to be shared so others could also find healing, you know, could have another story shared. Um, you're not alone. And that's the reason sometimes we go through the pain is that we, yeah. we have to share that so, so other people know, this is how I overcame it, you're not alone. Um, you know, I found courage or strength or redirection in it. Um, do not give the power to whatever the situation is. Give the power to where it's going to lead you. Absolutely. I so agree with that, that, that uh, we may not be going through something for our benefit. Well, it will be, hopefully, yes. at one point. But... But we may be going through events in our lives that uh, we, in turn, will be able to turn around and share or be there for someone else to say, oh, okay, I was there. I know what it's like. You will get through this. Um, it may seem like it now, but, but you know, things are going to come out at the end, and um, you can do this. Yeah. Or become cheerleaders for other people. Yes. I absolutely believe that. Yeah. So this this book right now um, it sounds very exciting, and it also sounds that it really is a is actually I don't know age appropriate is, but you know I would imagine actually that it's kind of quite um, 
useful for teachers actually to uh, to have um, just because you know it can open up some inquiry you know how much is fiction and truth here you know what is the truth what what would the truth be to you how much do you believe in that and open up a whole conversation here yes and it's also it's not just teachers I would say high school level and above uh-huh. but um, many libraries because it received a really good review it was a star debut choice and the library journal uh, so a lot of libraries hearing it and I think it's being found by people who wouldn't necessarily go out and buy books but definitely would go to the library and read it and I am getting quite a bit of feedback. Interestingly enough, most of the letters I get are from Mormons, and they're they're very nice. Yes. <laughs> I thought, well, I'm writing about Mormons. Maybe they're going to hate me or, you know. Uh, but they, they've written and said, you know, thank you, and, and you you were fair and honest and and um, told a story that we knew about or knew a little about. And, and uh, so that's been very encouraging. That was my goal was to tell the story and not pass yeah, and let the reader come to their own decisions or conclusions based on what they read. Right. And, you know, when it comes down to it, you know, is a lot of people in, in any faith become victims of the fanatics. And and then what's remembered of that faith is the fanatic. Um, and it's not generally, you know, the what the faith means or what people are practicing. It's just that one person's hysterical interpretation of it that takes it down a wrong road. So, you know, I think we have to look at that sometime. We paint the brush of different religions is that we have to look the interpretation of that religion um, through, a, you know, a few people's eyes that kind of contaminate it to really what it truly means to the masses. So it kind of is an, an, an education on that as well. Yes. Um, like I said, the first one is about a Mormon fanaticism. It's about... Um, the, uh, a group called Avenging Angels and uh, some very fanatical movement and activities. Book two is about a group I mentioned Phineas Priesthood, which is the most violent of the Christian identity group. And the Christian identity group is the group behind such people as the Aryan Nations, the Order, of the, I mentioned Phineas Priesthood, all of those that have specific beliefs on race mingling and are very anti-Semitic. Um, so I, and I actually worked on those cases in the uh, 1990s and the early 2000s when the Ar- Aryan Nations was based here in, in Hayden, Idaho. So I actually sat in the courtroom and did the courtroom sketches. I worked on the bombing cases and so on. So that formed the basis for book two. Mm-hmm. It also has a serial killer, and of course I worked on serial killing cases. Yeah. So it has, that one probably more so than the first one has, much of my experience in dealing with different groups. Right. And the third one I'm searching now. Great. Well, I think fantastic that you are kind of continuing the theme, you know, and allowing that story to kind of continue on and, you know, but, you know, strengthen. I mean, the... There are some people that are just simply, you know, born to write. My brother was like that, you know, from the age of six, words and things like this. He was just born always to be a writer. And, you know, I find his books, his truth comes out more than what he lives. It's in his books. And, you know, when you bring, as you know, your experience into those books, it truly, it resonates on the page. You know, as opposed to somebody just having no identity and just writing a story, it just, it, you know how the words don't connect to the page? 
But when you have somebody who's really, truly experienced this and they're bringing that to the page, you can really see those words totally melding with the page and the authenticity coming through. And so therefore, you really get into the character so much more because you can really feel the reality of it. Yes, and, and in a lot of books that are out there, uh, they they really don't have that gen feel about them, as you were just mentioning. They It's like, gosh, what would happen if and then they come up with a story that really isn't big and deep and doesn't have enough stakes, and it's sort of like, oh, let's talk about a present day and so on. Uh, so those books, it's because they really don't know, and so they just think, well, this might make a good story. Yeah. And, and you can really, you can feel it. You yes, can you can. read it, you can feel it. Um, and it's it's pretty common to, to read books like that. On the other hand, you can get it where it's uh, maybe a little too gritty. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> where uh, they have gone through it, and the pain uh, is almost too much to read. So you have to balance you yes. know, the reality, but also put it in a way of, of you know, so people can read and not put down as, oh, I just can't, I can't handle the pain that's, that's on the pages here. <laughs> it's, you know, you've got, you've got the paint by numbers, which I often refer to, you know, people just painting somebody else's outline. And you've also got, you know, the, the book formula that people follow. But what they don't realize is when you write, you're not just writing from an idea. If you don't incorporate the heart, the soul and the spirit in it, um, it just has nothing to say. Yeah, that is so profound. Yes, absolutely. The the um, the whole formula types that are out there. Um, some people may find comfort in that. I mean, they don't have to worry about it. But it doesn't resonate with them once they put the book down. It's like uh, I'll just spend some time looking at these words on a piece of paper. That's your paint by number kind of writing. Yeah. And uh, you want to write a book that people remember after they put it down. It. it, it Stays with them. Yes. Maybe even. I like to, I don't like to immediately pick up another book. You know, I like to have a book stay with me for a while and, you know, mm-hmm. my memory revisit it. So, or, you know, I project, now what would I have done if I'd been that person? Would I have taken that path? And I kind of mm-hmm. relive it. And it's the same if I see, you know, a movie or a good TV show. And, you know, I like to digest it and null it over. And, you know, um, and there's certain books that, you know, will stay with me forever because they also became. You know, my catalyst, my redirection, uh, my epiphany moment, you know, that, uh, you know, suddenly was the message I was looking for without realizing. And there it was in a simple plot or a simple storyline. I suddenly had that, you know, wonderful epiphany of where and what and an understanding. And I love those moments. (laughs) We can always hope that we write that. One. Yes, <laughs> but you know, it's 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 um it's it's whatever the messing messaging is meant to be for that person. I'm inclined to go into a bookstore and I not know what I'm looking for, and I'll just mm-hmm. you know let my hand or my eyes take me to a book, and I'll just open it up to a page, and then the book that speaks to me, there is something on that page, a, a sentence, a paragraph that is completely speaking to what I need, and I know that's the book I need at that moment. Oh, that's perfect. That's and like, even even with your book now, you know, people can just open up to a chapter once they've read it, go back and revisit it, and there will be something in there, you know, a paragraph, a line or two, or a few words that can just be an answer 
to what we need right now is just that we've you know, we've got to stop looking at books as a beginning and an end and then forget it next. We've got to look at it as that storytelling can keep on telling and it can still have more messages for us. We've just go back and revisit them. And I think you put your finger on it when you called it not just writing but storytelling. Yeah. Because that's what we're doing is we're, we're storytelling where it's in the, the tradition of the best storytellers um, telling something around a campfire that haunts you and stays with you or, or however it is that you communicate that particular story. That's what we're looking at is storytelling. Well, you've been storytelling through your art, even though it's forensic. You're storytelling. You're telling the story of what that person saw. So yeah. you're, you're that translator. And so now you've just taken all of that, that what you've learned, put into books and transformed that storytelling into words. So a different art form. It is a different art form. It takes a while to learn. But yes, it is. It's, it's telling the story of a particular series of events as opposed to sitting out and working with a victim or witness and telling their story of what they saw and felt and so on in our drawings. And even the fine art is a form of storytelling, the telling the story of how I viewed a particular flower or puppy or what have you and, and the colors I choose and the looseness or tightness of the painting. It's all, it's all a type of storytelling. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we, we learn from other people's stories. We always have from the beginning of time. Yes. Stories have been passed down, passed down, and passed down, and then, then we got the gift of you know the the written wooden books, where then you know it became that more and more people could read that story, and also it stay more true to the story, and not get changed from one person to the next. And then, of course, we went into movies telling the story. Um, I did a an interview uh, last week on on. Uh, the movies that raise our consciousness, the messages that are coming through them. And like books, movies can be so profound in helping you understand your own journey or in directing. It's question to us is that just don't go and see a movie or read a book just for an entertainment value. Go in there open mind, um, open hearted, open souled and receive the information that you're truly meant to get from it. Yes, a beautiful story that leaves you with intrigue and, and, and thought-provoking, but how did it also make you feel? And how can you take that feeling into your own life? What's it trying to tell you about yourself? Because every book or every movie does have that somewhere. Absolutely, and it's, it's always wonderful to have someone to talk it over with afterward yeah. or go with and and then have a discussion later and say, okay, this is this is what I really liked about it, or this is where it touched me, because then it it helps you to confirm what it is you are feeling. It also helps to hear somebody else, and, and they may say, well, you know, I, I really like that part. You go, oh, wow, I didn't even kind of notice that part. And yeah. you realize, okay, this is a story that had so many layers that talked to so many different people in so many different ways. We, we are governed by four key perspectives in our understanding of life and how we make our decisions and how we uh, do our interactions and receive information. And so we need those four diverse perspectives when we're looking at something to get the whole picture. And with each person sharing their view on it, you end up with a lovely, robust, um, you know, in point of view on the street that there has really grown. Absolutely. Um, I had the opportunity to speak to some book clubs that had read my book and have had questions. And what's interesting is they sometimes had images. They go, well, I really got this out of it that 
I didn't even know was in there. Exactly. That's <laughs> so what I'm saying. You never know what a book, <laughs> you know, you, you've written it from your perspective. Now other uh-huh. people in their journey of your story are seeing it from their perspective. And that's the beauty of it. And that's the beauty of sharing it and discussing it with people is that you get something out of it that you had not seen from your angle. But when it comes from the other, oh, now what a beautiful full picture you've got. Absolutely. And it's very exciting as an author to get that feedback, to hear uh, what they, their takeaway value. Because I know what I put in it for takeaway value, but when they say, well, I got this as well, it's like, oh, wow, that's cool. I didn't even think about that. So it, it's not just the viewer of a movie or the reader of a book, but as the creator yes. of the book or movie. Um, to get the uh, the inside of the people actually viewing it or reading it is very exciting. Well, I should say, as long as (laughs) they liked it. (laughs) Yes. Well, yes, exactly. Uh, And, you know, that's where I'm talking about where the real words are emerged into the page. Um, because the the depth of them had layers and and reached people on different perspectives and it's been talked about Um, and that's when you really know something has a depth to it and a meaning to it as opposed to something that you know they um, they just didn't mean anything and those are the things that get forgotten easily if you're being talked about you're doing something right (laughs) (laughs) That's right that's exactly right so how do people get your book, Love? Can you give everybody your site and where they can get your books from? And also if they are looking at a forensic career in art with, um, you know, your program. Absolutely. Well, first of all, they can contact me or read up on all the books and all the things that I'm doing on my website, which is my name. And I'll spell it because there's so many ways to spell Carrie and Stuart. Carrie is C-A-R-R-I-E. Stewart is S-T-U-A-R-D, and my last name is Parks, P-A-R-K-S. It's my webpage, CarrieStuartParks.com. You can contact me on Facebook, uh, which is the same thing, Carrie Stuart Parks author on Facebook. You can find the book in most every place. Um, Amazon carries it, Barnes & Nobles. Uh, your Christian bookstores carry it. Um, uh, it's called A Cry from the Dust. You can order, you can even get it online at Walmart. I mean, it's kind of all over. That's um, great. <laughs> you can download a Kindle version, um, and there is an audio version as well. Um, Twitter, my name is Care Parks on Twitter. Um, I guess those are the main ways you would get find the book. It's pretty easy to find A Cry from the Dust. And your Bones Will Speak is also up there too, right? Uh, the Bones Will Speak will be coming out next summer, uh, okay. and I'm starting to add it now. At least I've got the cover. They've finished the cover on it, which is kind of exciting. Uh, and it will come out next summer, and it's by it's the next in the series about Gwen Marcy, which is the name of the forensic artist. And for those of you interested in learning more about forensic art, we also have a forensic art page, which is just Stuart Parks, Drop the Carry. And we teach all across the U.S. and Canada. We teach forensic art classes one week long. And we have a variety of people that, uh, that join us, people that have master's degree in fine art and people who can draw blood with a knife <laughs> all show up, and we have a grand time. Um, and uh, we've been doing the forensic art training for 26 years now. We're the largest trainers of forensic arts in the world. 
and um, we would love to see you in that. We also offer fine art classes in that same week if you want to just learn how to draw a face. So all of those things are available to you, and I'm very much loving to talk to people. <laughs> so I love hearing from you. Wonderful. And, you know, it's not just uh, human faces. Uh, you have this beautiful dog and, of course, you know, doggy faces. Um you know, it does it doesn't have to be of the human nature, right? Of the human kind. Right, right, right. We have our fur friends. Um, I teach people primarily to draw the face because that's the hardest thing to draw. Yes. So if you can learn to do the hardest thing, then everything else is much easier. But I love painting and drawing animals and my great Pyrenees, of course, and all the critters around us and uh, some landscape, florals, just anything as far as the, the fine art goes. And the, you know, the other thing you've got, which we haven't mentioned, is the fact that you do have um, how-to books for the artist and the artist-to-be. Um, so, you know, on drawings here and actually the realistic, um, you know, how to do the drawings, which I would like my daughter to look at. Um, because, you know, there's, you know, it's this, she's a, an abstract artist. When you talked about the big mouth, it immediately came to a picture that she had drawn, which was of a body that's extremely curvy with a ponytail, and then all it is is a big mouth, you know, <laughs> shouting. And so all of her art is is less to do with it being, you know, absolutely correct. But each one of them, in its shape and size and what it's doing, is speaking to you, uh, you know. Um, about something and I, I love it because it's really kind of weird and wacky type art and uh, and she has flat heads you know she's always done flat heads and it's now become a thing you know her thing is flat heads <laughs> so, <laughs> but you, you, exactly so you know you may you may learn how to draw properly but then it also allows you to then be creative and find your voice too right Right. Creativity is a knowledge-based activity. So if you have the knowledge of how to do it correctly, then you can take the creative side, which is, okay, I know how to draw this face accurately, but what is that saying about the face? Yeah. Or what is that saying about the landscape or whatever it is you're working on? So you build on that accuracy with the creativity of expanding or through color or through uh, manipulation, you change it so that it no longer is just, okay, here's like a photographic picture of it, right. but here's how I feel about it. Here's what yes. I think about it. And this is what it's saying. But having that basic, like, you know, any form of dancer, if they've got a little ballet, it's always, you know, a great basis in which to springboard any form of dance. So it's just kind of a wonderful tool to have is the knowledge. And then from there, you can really then find your expression. Exactly, exactly. This has been wonderful. I've really enjoyed this hour and uh, love what you're doing and your books and, you know, how they've come about. And uh, they've taken a life of their own on here. And uh, I think you'll find with the the, the next two books that you write that uh, they they will, the characters will become probably larger than life and and, um, even, you know, more defined which I think is wonderful because that's what we read when we go into the trilogies and things we see those characters become even more you know depth and immerse and you know become character you know like Hercules Poirot Um, you know it's a character that everybody thinks is real and he has become real because of the pen and then of course obviously the tv series and producing um, 
you know, the wonderful actor who, who's played them. But, uh, you know, Agatha Christie never thought she was a great writer, but look at her testament to writing. Absolutely, Sarah. And, and it's been very, very exciting to do that. I mean, the process, as a reader myself and a huge fan of Agatha Christie and Sherlock Holmes yes. series, as well as the more recent writings, you're right. It absolutely forms a part of your life. And and uh, I even use some of that in my writings about, you know, the Sherlock activity or thinking like Sherlock or or the Agatha Christie cozy mysteries that that they've actually become a genre just because they were so wonderfully wonderfully drawn and uh, you know with Sherlock Holmes um, you know Conan Doyle um, he was a doctor and some of the techniques that uh, Sherlock Holmes used became the practice of the police force so from fiction can come reality absolutely and that's what's so exciting about it is that he described methods that are used today. Yes. And at the time, it was his just fictional, gee, it should maybe done this. But in reality, he just had marvelous ideas that was well in front of his time. Yeah. And that's why it resonates today. Yes. So you never know when you're writing something and where it's going or the profound effect it's going to actually have. So, you know, trust the journey, right? <laughs> trust the journey, right. <laughs> Well, thank you so much. This has been absolutely delightful. Um, so, her, again, her site is kerrystewartparks.com uh, and um, her books, A Cry from the Dust. Um, start off with that one. You'll be hungry for the next one. The Bones Will Speak. Don't forget her non-fiction books if you're wanting to learn about uh, just you know how to draw properly. And, of course, if you really want to get into it, she has these wonderful courses and classes that you can take. So uh, I thank you very much for your journey and for sharing it with us here today. Thank you, Sarah. It's been a wonderful journey with you today. Wonderful. So, folks, get out and read it because you never know what you're going to learn. And don't forget to trust your own artistic nature because you don't know what lies within you until you're willing to take the journey. Until next time, everyone, be kind to yourself.